If you would join me in prayer this morning. Father, today we uh, ask as we open your word that you would um, open our hearts and that you would speak to us and Father, you would show us your truth and we pray that your truth uh, would change uh, the way that we live. And so Father, we pray that you would teach us today and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. There is a classic story that is told and it goes like this. There was a man um, walking down the street one day and he came to a construction site. And uh, he saw three men who were bricklayers working. He came to the first man and he said, what are you doing? And the man kind of looked at him bewildered and he said I'm laying bricks the man went on down and he came to the second man and he posed the same question what are you doing this man responded I'm building a wall he walked on down to the third man and asked the same question what are you doing and this man responded, I am raising up a cathedral to the glory of God. Three men involved in the same task, but each man saw their work from a different perspective. Uh, this year, we have set it as our task to look at the Bible from 30,000 feet, to look at the big picture. And the intent of that is that somehow when we see God's big picture, that we would begin to understand how our work and what we do on a daily basis fits in to that big scheme. Does that make sense? Um, I guess the danger in our lives day by day as we go about our employment or whether it's school, uh, whether it's family life, raising kids, whatever we're doing, you're doing at this stage in your life, is that we get into that uh, maybe routine of doing all those things, but we fail to see where that fits in the big picture. <laughs> and quite honestly, you can look at, we can fall on one of two extremes or somewhere in the middle. Either you're just laying bricks in your life. I'm just making sure the kids don't kill themselves, that they're, they're fed and they get to school. You know, nobody gets hurt. Uh, you know, I'm just trying to do my job at work, whatever it is I do, just you know, quite honestly, just to make an income so we can, you know, have the things that we need. That would be one extreme. The other extreme would just say, you know what? My raising my family, my 
employment that I do fits into a much grander scheme of what God wants to do. That God has a purpose and a plan. And the Bible relates really one big story of redemption. And as we commit our lives to Christ, then our story begins to fit in God's story. And we should never lose sight of that. So... I had one sermon last year, the last Sunday of last year, and then this year there's going to be 50 sermons, so there's 51 of these sermons that helps us to hopefully put the Bible together. Um, everything that we talk about, I mean, if you think about it, when I started, in fact, it was about a year ago at this point, and going, okay, if I had to preach the Bible in 51 sermons, what would it be that I would include? And quite honestly, some of that is, what are some things that I'm, I'm, I don't have time to talk about? I want you to understand that each one of these truths or concepts are, are like a brick in a wall. And we're, we're building something, and it... it it creates something. Uh, and each one of those truths or each one of these sermons is not just theoret theoretical theology, but it is practical truth of how we are to live and never so true as this morning's sermon. What I talk about this morning is not theoretical theology. It's not something that is going to happen out there that, yes, I guess I need to know somehow, but it doesn't make any difference to my, to my life. No, what we talk about today is very practical for the way that we live, and I believe it's one of those concepts that takes us from laying bricks day by day to building a cathedral to the glory of God. I'd ask you this morning, to, if at the end of your pews is your reference sheet, I know you are saving these and you're putting them in a three-ring binder for the final exam, which will be the first Sunday of next year. I know you're doing that. I know you're saving your notes. You can access these uh, online. Um, I think most of them, we'll have to work on that maybe this week. But I want you to get uh, an understanding of the chronology of not only Paul's ministry, but also his, his, his letters. And so at the top you can see the, the timeline and you can see Paul's really ministry as a missionary begins in 46 AD and there's the first missionary journey. There is a significant event that we didn't even talk about really, the Jerusalem Council in 48, second missionary journey, uh, generally from 49 to 51 and then the third missionary journey in 52 and on. Uh, from there Paul is imprisoned. I've included Peter's execution and then eventually Paul is executed in 68. If you look at that, Paul has about a 20-year-long ministry. That's it. But he is the most influential thinker, theologian. He is the one person uh, other than Jesus Christ that sets his mark on the modern church today. But at that next level, you see Paul's letters. 
And I want you to understand that his letters fall into the chronology of the timeline above that. And the first of those letters, chronologically, not in our Bible order, but in the way that they, the time they were written, is Galatians. And last Sunday we talked from Galatians about grace because I believe it was, it's the big thought uh, that Paul brought to Christian theology. This morning we come to First and Second Thessalonians. Now, Paul is the great theologian thinker of the Christian church. He writes 13 letters of the 27 books of the New Testament. Uh, we could spend a lot of time on him, but the way I broke this down a year ago, I have five sermons on Paul's 13 letters. We're not going to cover all of them. But when I began to look at them chronologically and I said, what is the big thought from Galatians? Well, it's about grace. When I came to First Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, it's like, wow, there's one idea here. And it's something that we need to talk about, and it is about end times and the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is the major topic in First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, can we show a map? Do we have a map today? How many of y'all are visual learners? David Shaw and me, Kevin Burnett, okay, it's a few others of us. Uh, you may have a study Bible, and this may be in the back of your Bible, but if not, this is uh, a map, and if you're not a map person, this is way too much detail for you. You're glossing over right now, but Rob Hughes is with me. He's tracking me, and um, uh, Thessalonica is uh, up at the top of where you see Macedonia in the yellow. It's one of those cities. Paul leaves Antioch and he goes to Asia Minor and that's the region of Galatia and that's his first letter after he returns and he hears a report from them. The second one, he ends up going into the continent of Europe and he ends up going into northern Greece or Macedonia and he comes to Thessalonica, which is a major city there in the north of Greece or what was known as Macedonia back in the, the time. His missionary uh, journeys kept expanding outward, taking the gospel uh, further and further. His account in Thessalonica is not a long one, but it's contained in Acts chapter 17. And it tells the story for really a short period of time that Paul preaches the gospel Great numbers of people came to faith, predominantly Gentile people in Thessalonica. A church is set up, and here was the pattern. He went in, he evangelized, he led people to faith, he organized a church, and then he would teach them Christian truth or doctrine. But as in most of his towns, he was run out of town, quite honestly, in a short period of time. And so the letters are Paul's, um, part of Paul's approach to go back and to make sure that he clarifies Christian doctrine. For the Thessalonians, the issue that becomes the question, the critical part, the one that caused controversy was about in time. It's, it's, it's really the heart and the major topic uh, of First and Second Thessalonians. And think about this. 
The Apostle Paul comes in, he preaches the gospel, they understand they're sinners, they need a savior, they trust Jesus and all of that. But most of these pagan people obviously were coming from a non-biblical background. They didn't have a concept of morality, which we're going to get to in First and Second Corinthians next Sunday. But they also just didn't have a sense of what does the Bible teach? What did Jesus teach about so many concepts? And one of those was end times. And you think about it. This is what their experience was because Paul was run out of town. He's persecuted. And in fact, we know from First and Second first and second Thessalonians that that becomes the pattern in fact Paul Acts tells us that Paul went on to Berea after Thessalonica and the Thessalonians that were opposed to Paul were so zealous against the gospel they traveled from Thessalonica to Berea and they ran him out of Berea it's just like no we don't want you to have anything to do but persecution became the characteristic of the people that lived in that region now think about this. They trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. They established their churches. But what did they experience? So much what, of what they experienced was opposition, persecution, a term that Jesus would use, tribulation, against them. And it was like, wow. So we're supposed to be out here promoting the gospel and expanding the kingdom of God, but it seems like everywhere we go, most of what we experience is opposition. And they had surely had to come to this thought of like, wait a second, how does this thing end? Where are we heading? And Paul begins to teach about not only end times, but specifically about the second coming of Jesus Christ. We know from reading First and Second Thessalonians that there were certain misunderstandings <laughs> that arose among the Thessalonians about end times and the second coming. One of those was that the day of Christ had already come and they had missed it. It came and we just missed it. Uh, some taught were saying that. They also had questions about their fellow believers that in those short months had died. And some of them knew that Paul had taught that Jesus is going to come and get you. But wait a second, they died. They're in the ground. What's going to happen to them? And so there were questions. Another misunderstanding was that Jesus... Uh, coming was so soon that we didn't really need to show up for work on Monday morning. We might as well, listen, it's, we, what we heard Paul say, he's coming like real soon, therefore, you know, I'm just going to kind of, I'm going to kind of coast, because think about it, why are we going to show up for work when Jesus is coming back real soon? I want you to see what Paul taught. The Thessalonians, and there's four major passages, and I basically want to read these this morning and then draw some conclusions at the end. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. These will be familiar passages to you, for most of you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. And I want you, I'm going to try to refrain from commenting. I just want to read them. 
I'm, I'm not, I'm going to comment, let's just be honest, but I, I want to keep from commenting because I want to make my comments at the end. But I want you to listen closely to the truths that Paul was teaching them about end times and specifically the second coming of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Let me just make one comment. Sorry. Those are the dead in Christ that have been buried in the ground. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Jesus is going to take care of them. Don't fret. In fact, it's already taken care of them. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, have already died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Make that note. It's not that they're going to miss it. In fact, they're going to take precedent. They're going to precede you. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Chapter 5, verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they, he means the unbelievers, say peace and safety then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should know we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you are doing. Turn in your Bibles or look on the screen, 2 Thessalonians. These are back-to-back -back letters, we believe, chronologically. It's like there were some questions. Paul had taught on this. There were misunderstandings. He thought he cleared it up. Word came back, no, nope, they still confused. Paul says, all right, pen another letter, 
2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, he is talking about tribulations. Pick it up mid-sentence. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5. Which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Make a mental note, suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. There's something going on in this world, a time of trouble, but there's going to be different outcomes for those who believe and for those who don't believe. Chapter 2, verse 1. We'll read to 12. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above, above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason... God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There is a major word that occurs uh, at a high rate of frequency in First and Second Thessalonians, and it is the word coming, the coming of the Lord. The Greek word is the word parousia. 
It's only used 17 times in the whole New Testament. Six of those, among all the writers, six of those are in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. The Bible has 518 references to the return of Christ in the New Testament, the 27 books. But there is this concentration of uh, Paul's teaching about end times in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, but the major word that ties all those together is the word parousia, and it refers to Christ coming. The next big event in redemptive history. Now, what I'm talking about is what are the big events? You've had the cruci- the coming, the birth of Jesus, his ministry, his, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the sending of the Spirit. Big events. The next big event is the second coming of Jesus Christ. There is, there is a purpose, there is a time for what God is doing in this, but I want you to understand in the big picture that the second coming is the next big event in redemptive history. Think about, and I, I want to just put this together just briefly this morning, Paul's teaching. You can look at the other scriptures. In fact, uh, on your sheet, it talks about Paul's teaching on end times, and you see there are other scriptures. First uh, and Second Thessalonians has other references and other things that Paul says, but that's, uh, you can look at those. This is what Paul would say. We live in the day between Pentecost and the second coming in which God has given us the commission, the task of preaching the gospel into all the world, that every people group in the world would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what missions is all about. But in the midst of that, there is opposition. And what what Paul is teaching us, when we get closer to the end, there is going to be an intensification of the persecution and the tribulation. Okay? And it's, there's going to be a face put to the opposition, the persecution, and the tribulation. And it is a figure that is called the Antichrist. And he's described in that, the last passage that we read. Um, and I don't have time to talk about it this morning. I just want you to see the big picture. But at the end, there will be an intensification uh, of persecution. In the face of that, the leader of that will be the Antichrist. What the Bible says is at that, at that point, in God's appointed time, that the Father knows there will be a sudden and immediate return of Christ. Like it's described, a thief in the night. Christ's coming will be unexpected to the unbelievers. But you understand when, when, when Christ comes again, human history as we know it is over. That's it. Finished. The curtain closes. The drama, at least on this earth, is over. Except for the millennium, which I don't have time to talk about this morning. But in general terms, no, that's it. He comes. And, and destinies are set. There's no more choices to be made. Our choice has been made. The word that I would use to describe the return of Christ is the word sudden. It is unexpected. 
by the unbelievers, but Paul teaches that it is to be anticipated by believers. We knew that it was coming, and we had prepared, and we were watchful towards it. You are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief, but you are in the light. You know we are to live in anticipation of that. At that point, what Paul teaches is that the dead in Christ will rise first. Um, um, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And as we have a physical body, we have a soul, we have a spirit. And that when our, our physical body dies, it's laid to the dust. From dust it came to dust it returns. The spirit returns to God who gave it. And when Jesus comes again, he will bring with him those in whatever form they are in. Don't, it's not their final form. But to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for the believers. And Jesus will come with the saints who have died before. And their bodies will be resurrected into a body like Jesus. And their, their soul, their spirit will be joined. And they will be lifted up into the air. And then those of us we don't know that we will be here, but we know the day is getting closer. We will be raptured, is the word that is used in the Latin in Paul's, uh, the first passage that I read. Caught up to be raptured. And all of the believers then will be taken to heaven by Jesus. Jesus that will then judge. He will settle accounts. And the unbelievers will be punished as he describes. And believers will receive a reward and rest for their labor. That is, that is the sequence, that is a synopsis of what Paul would teach about end times and specifically the sudden return or the second, sudden, second coming of Jesus Christ. His first was in Bethlehem. His second will be in power for him to come and to get his children. And there are certain things that we believe. You understand that the second coming of Jesus becomes a hinge which, which transforms our world into the eternal world. world. It, it transforms everything. It is the hinge of history in which God will, will complete his redemptive work in all of us. And so because we believe that Jesus will return, it will be verification, it will be proof. And understand that when Jesus returns again, I, I get the sense of Paul on the road to Damascus who believed that Jesus was dead and the gospel was a lie. And when Jesus appeared to him, he said, well, apparently I've got to rethink my theology because it's not square, because the man in great glory that is speaking to me is Jesus Christ. He must be alive. Therefore, Paul had to go through a transformation of his mind because he was confronted. I believe that day will be like that for unbelievers, for them to go, oh, wow. It was true. For us as believers, it will be that day that we will verify that Jesus is alive. We, we, we believe it by faith today, but we will see him and we will know that he was raised from the dead. It will be verification of that day that when we stand not just before God someday to give an account of our lives, it will be Jesus that will judge us that day. 
And it will be him who will give his children everlasting life. How will we know that he has the power to give everlasting life? Because we will have verified by our own experience that he was raised from the dead. It was not just something we read in the Bible. The preachers told me about something I believe by faith. My eyes will see it. It will be real. He is alive. I know that he has the power to give me everlasting life. And we will believe as the judge that day that he will repay for everything that has happened in this world whether good or bad. There will be rewards and there will be punishment that will be doled out that day. The second coming of Jesus will be a shocking experience for unbelievers. But it will be a glorious experience for us. And the point of all that Paul wrote about, here it is. Some do not believe it. But for those of us who believe, it changes the way we live now. That is Paul's point. This is not just theoretical theology. Oh yeah, Jesus is coming again someday. No, it is practical truth. To know that Jesus is going to come today changes the way we live now. Do you get it? Paul is writing to people in the midst of persecution who feel separated from Christ because in the midst of their pain and their suffering, they're thinking, where is Jesus? How can Jesus let this go on? And so there's this sense of separation from Christ. And then in the midst of that, they see people dying. Where is the hope in the Christian faith when we experience persecution, separation from Christ, the death of our fellow believers, and we labor to spread the gospel, but it seems like so much of what we get back is just pushback, is persecution, opposition. It is the second coming of Jesus that changes all of that. And because of the second coming of Jesus, we are encouraged in the midst of our persecutions because we know someday all accounts will be settled. According to God's justice, all things will be made right. Do you get it? When the Thessalonians experience and our experience so many times is that it seems that evil wins out and it hurts us to do the right thing. God just says, wait. Paul says to the Thessalonians, just wait. Because someday, when Jesus comes again, all accounts will be settled. It encourages us in the midst of our persecution. It gives us a sense of peace in that separation from Christ when our hearts say, why doesn't God do something? Why isn't there something more tangible, real in this world? And we feel this separation from Christ. When Christ comes again, the phrase that Paul uses over and over is, we will be with him. It seems like separation now, and it is, except in a spiritual sense, Someday we will be with him. We will see him in his glory. 
And so we have peace in the midst of our separation from Christ. The second coming is a reality that also gives us hope. In the midst of lives where we see death. Someday, the one who rose from the dead will come to get all those who have placed their faith in him. And how, Paul says this over and over, you should go back and read those. How do we know that he has the power to give us everlasting life? Because death was not able to hold him. And he lives, and by faith we have to see it. But someday our faith will become sight and it will be at the second coming. We will know he is alive. And even though we believe, it will be real that day. And so in the midst of a world that we experience death, there is hope in Christ. And then finally, the second coming teaches us in this life to live with endurance in the midst of laboring to take the gospel into all the world and in the streets of Huntington, Texas the second coming teaches us to keep pressing on to endure because Jesus said someday you may not see it now you don't, you know, it's labor. We're working the fields. But someday when he comes again, as a part of his judgment, he said, there will be a reward. Even for every thought and word you spoke. And the other thing he says is there will be rest. There's labor between Pentecost and the second coming. There is labor in the gospel, but just endure because someday when he closes this show down, for those who have labored and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, there will be reward and there will be rest. It's not just theoretical truth. It's practical truth. And I believe if we will live in the reality of what Paul was th teaching the Thessalonians of the second coming of Jesus Christ and allow that to dominate our lives until that time, God can move us from simply laying bricks, raising our families, going to work, doing the things we're supposed to be doing, he can move us to building a cathedral to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. If you would stand with me this morning. This morning as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, uh, there is a response. Truth always calls for a response. And this morning, uh, your response to the truth may be, I know the day is coming. I've never placed my faith in Jesus Christ. Today is my day.
God is calling me uh, to walk out of the darkness and walk into the light. And we're going to ask you to come. You can speak to Byron or myself about how you can establish that relationship. Take that step of faith in your life. Uh, some of the rest of you uh, maybe have been saved for a long time. Uh, today is a day to call you to obedience in an area of your life. And I, I, I don't know what God has for you. It may be uh, to take a step of officially joining this church. Maybe it's the step of baptism. Uh, maybe there is a step uh, of an area of service that God has called you to. And you need to be obedient and make that known. You can come to the altar. You can come to Byron and I to speak that. You can talk to God about that. Uh, but there is a point of obedience that God calls you to today. And so we're going to invite you to come. Father, we, uh, we ask that uh, we would be obedient and we would live out of the truth that we know and we say we believe. And Father, I pray this in Jesus' name.